Nietzsche is one of the great destructive philosophers that's ever lived. Uh, he is extremely ruthless. And uh, he, uh, he operates in a unique uh, space in the history of philosophy because there's a sense in which he's an archaic philosopher. He's last of the great pre-Socratics. But there's also a sense in which he's the most important philosopher for even the 20th and 21st centuries because we're saturated in Nietzschean philosophy. You know, he dies in 1900, but his influence casts a very long shadow. So he is simultaneously archaic and contemporary, which is a strange kind of thing. Just a very strange combination. He's also one of the great poet philosophers that ever lived. Uh, part of the reason why he hates Plato so much is a professional jealousy. Same reason that Plato is so pissed off at Homer. Yeah, he thinks their doctrines are, are wrong, but also there's a sense that these are, that the their predecessors were so powerful intellectually and poetically that uh, it's a hard job to do to escape what uh, Harold Bloom called the anxiety of influence. So Plato, no, Plato never lets up on Homer, and Nietzsche never lets, lets up on Plato. And, uh, you know, great poets know uh, that they're great, and they know how many other great ones compare to them. Uh, think about Dante at the beginning of the Inferno. Right. Uh, you can't be a serious Christian without paying your dues and thinking your way into and then out of Nietzsche. Right, uh, he is the most serious intellectual challenge to monotheism. Now, what he's proposing is what he calls master morality, but what it, what that in fact was is pure predator parasitism, what I call PPP. That was the justification that warlike, violent peoples gave for just exploiting and ultimately exterminating. Um, less warlike, less powerful peoples. And the problem is, is that uh, this destroys itself. Uh, in other words, Nietzsche does not see that, that justice is functional. And here I don't mean just functional to protect the weak and the incapable and the useless. It's functional because it serves the interests of the elite as well. Here's the deal. In the early history of Mesopotamia, which... Nietzsche does not appear to know very well. Uh, certainly wouldn't know it as well, as well as we would in the 21st century. There's a series of staccato break uh, creations of societies, civilizations, and then a couple of generations go by and they collapse. And so you see this up and down uh, problem in Mesopotamia. And the source of it is the instability that comes from a political regime that tries to get by without justice. You see, justice is what brings the underclass on board and accept the legitimacy of the ruling class. But justice isn't going to work unless the ruling class, in taking this idea of justice, learn how to restrain themselves. So, think of it this way. Human beings are the only animals that successfully domesticate themselves. The first thing that happens is that Warlike people enslave, kill and then enslave uh, less warlike people, 
and uh, they treat them like domesticated animals. The problem is that people resent being treated like domesticated animals. So whenever a regime comes under political stress, either from outside invasion or from internal dissension among the elite, these these angry farmers that you've ill-treated for so long, they're going to rise up and help one side or the other. And what that's going to lead to is the destruction of the elite that they hate so much. So as Machiavelli pointed out, it's better to be feared than loved, but it's very important not to be hated. And justice serves the function of enabling elites to restrain their hubris and their ill treatment of their inferiors. And in the long run, this self-restraint is what makes governments sustainable. So that's what the, uh, the achievement of the invention of justice is. And that's why it's associated with the great world religions. Now, Nietzsche thinks, ah, oh, back in the day, we didn't have to worry about justice. And we could kill and rape and pillage and do all the stuff that our libido suggests that we would have fun with. <coughs> but the point is, it's short-sighted. If you want civilization, and I think that Nietzsche does, ultimately, because he's a philosopher of culture. Um, if you want civilization, then you have to find a way to stabilize political life. And the only way to do that is with justice. And that's the main theme of all the axial religions from, say, 1000 BC to the time of Christ. So the point then is that uh, justice is not decorative like the fins on an old Cadillac. It's functional. And Phoenicians say, well, let's get rid of that. It's a way of saying, well, we're going to destabilize our political life and make civilization impossible. Fortunately for us, we know more about history than Nietzsche did. Well, since I've only read the genealogy of morals, what can you tell me about his other work? Oh, well, um, I personally like his autobiography. You know, <laughs> the subtitles? Well, it's the four questions each chapter, you know, yeah. why I'm so clever, why I'm so wise, why, why I write so good, books. good books, and why I write it, why I'm a destiny. Now, this is simultaneously megalomania and the most obvious kind of madness, but also uh, an accurate description of what he thinks he is and what he thinks he's trying to do. He thinks, look, there's nothing divine about Jesus that glows in the dark. He just happens to be a mythical figure that we latched onto. Granted, hanging on a cross and having people talk about you for 20 centuries is kind of an interesting thing to do. But Jesus' time is coming on, and now it's the time of Nietzsche. So he literally and seriously thinks that he's going to supersede Jesus. And yes, that's, uh, I mean, there's medication for that nowadays. On the other hand, uh, that's, given what he thinks about the world, that's not at all an impossible project, but it's a unique project for a unique mind, and that's why he is a destiny. What I find so frightening about him is um, just how much logical sense it really does make, some of the things that he says. There we go, yeah. But of course, logic, I mean, and being impressed with his logic mm -hmm. um, is only part of it. His rhetoric is actually better than his logic. Right, um, and he's a very, very subtle poet. One of the great prose poets of the German language. So uh, remember that he, if he's right, logic is the least of your concerns and his. <laughs> and that's yeah. So uh, Nietzsche is uh, 
one of his books is subtitled uh, How to Philosophize with a Hammer. Oh, that was in your lecture, wasn't it? Maybe it was, I don't know. Yeah, I um, think it was, I watched it uh, last night. Okay, well, there it is. Um, he's, uh, he's great at destroying things. The problem is he's, he's a laughably poor, constructive philosopher. It's always easy, easier to destroy things than it is to construct them. A child playing with matches can destroy a building that it takes a dozen carpenters to build. Right? Destruction is easy. That's why it appeals to people that don't have much going for them or that don't know all that much. That's why it appeals to young people, too. Let's smash something, smash the state or smash a statue. Um, it's a satisfying feeling, but also constructing a state or constructing a statue is a hell of a lot harder. It's actually light work. And so when Nietzsche tries to give us some affirmative philosophy, it's really laughable. It's like the eternal recurrence and the will to power and a whole bunch of and the Ubermensch and all the rest of this mumbo jumbo. Um, that's where it becomes laughably bad. You should stick to saying no. Now you haven't read Goethe's Faust yet, but of course, the devil when he comes to visit Faust introduces himself by saying, I am the spirit which negates. That I'm the spirit that says no. And uh, I think what Faust finds out is this just a, a hair more affirmation than negation in the universe. They're not perfectly balanced out. So I'm glad you're you're cutting your teeth on Nietzsche. It's good for you. It'll ring your bell, fuck your brain up. And, uh, you know, uh, what I like about Nietzsche is that he's daring and courageous. It is a courageous philosophy. I think it's ultimately unsatisfactory. But what, like Plato or Socrates, like Socrates, he demands that you tell him what is satisfactory then. And then, you, at least for me, I ended up becoming a better Christian because I knew what was at stake. All right. What really pisses me and Nietzsche off are what I would call Marin County fuzziness. You know, uh, Northern California, where we we get rid of God and the way, and uh, truth and reality, but we can all kind of join hands and uh, form a drum circle and uh, develop some local spirituality, which is worse than useless. So. Uh, um, Nietzsche and I, I mean, I, I admire Nietzsche because he's courageous and because he's willing to call a spade a spade. Um, what I dislike about him is that he's full of hate. That's part of what the deal is with uh, being the Antichrist. It's an interesting title to have. Well, it's an interesting title to give yourself. Yeah, he's the self-proclaimed Antichrist. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Romero knows his own limitations. Um... Uh, you know, uh, Nietzsche is, uh, I'm going to put this, he's, uh, he's an acquired taste. It's not for everybody. And his books vary, I think, in uh, quite considerably in their coherence. Now, part of the attraction of his anti-treatise writing, in other words, it's these little bits and pieces which don't form a coherent whole. Here, the genealogy of morals is different in the sense that those essays 
more or less have a consistent topic that connects them. But for most of Nietzsche's work, it's aphoristic. It's a paragraph or a few pages or maybe just a single line. And then he moves on to something else. And what he's trying to show there, the structure of his book, uh, or what I might call the lack of structure of his book, is that this perfectly mirrors the lack of structure of the universe, which is chaos. Without any God organizing it, what we what we think of as the cosmos is not the cosmos; it's the chaos, and that's all. That's what we have to deal with. The world around us is chaos, and so are we. We're random and accidental, and we have to be heroic enough to create value. Now, here's the well, I can tell you the punchline to the joke here. We are no more capable of creating value than we have, are, are of creating new primary colors. All the values in the world have already been fucking created, right? Because there aren't that many of them. There we go. Um, it's it's like creating a new color, or better still, a new shape. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, they were all there from the very beginning, right? Uh, you can start to call new things valuable uh, in the same way that you can call that you can call sawdust food. Say, my, look at this new value we've created. But I'm not sure that it's nutritious. Or people would have found out that it was food a long time ago. All right? So, uh, Nietzsche tells us that we are, we need to be heroic enough and strong enough and creative enough to create value. Um, I don't think that's possible. I think we discover it. I don't think we invent it. I think it exists externally to us. But Nietzsche, of course, would say that's a fatal error. And I understand that. You know, the problem is uh, that uh, Nietzsche, despite his bravery and despite the fact that I learned a lot from him, what I, one of the most important thing I learned from Nietzsche is that every insight is partial blindness. All right, you're never going to finish learning stuff. And there's all kinds of new shit that people might think of, like Nietzsche. I mean, how creative and strange. All right, there's a Lutheran pastor's son who's, uh, you know, succumbing to uh, syphilis, who writes some of the greatest works of the, in the history of Western thought. All right, uh, so uh, he's the one who writes in section 125 of the Gay Science. God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. Now, Nietzsche didn't kill God. He's like a very sensitive seismograph, telling everybody, look, I've been observing our culture, and uh, we've had this earthquake, and the rest of you don't seem to care, or don't seem to realize that this is catastrophic for us. A lot of people of his age had a kind of shallow scientific optimism. Well, we'll get rid of God, but it's all okay because things are becoming progressively better and all the rest of that jazz. And he says, look, um, it was our belief in God that gave us good reason to believe in metaphysics. And one of the things that our metaphysics was charged with doing was explaining and deploying our idea of truth. Idea that the, the idea that there is truth independent of anybody's perspective on it that it's an objective, absolute truth, requires the mind of God, okay? So it's the Christian tradition that created the metaphysics 
that supplied what became modern natural science with its conception of truth. That the truth could be gotten and could be articulated. Well, the problem is that they did articulate the truth about first uh, planets and astronomy, but then a couple of centuries later they got to Darwinian biology. And there the truth turns out to be that the stories that begin our Bible are false. And that means that there's no fall of man because uh, there's no uh, Garden of Eden, no snake, none of that. And if that's the case, then since nobody left the Garden of Eden, then nobody needs to be redeemed. Which means there's no point in Jesus sacrificing himself on the cross. So that's the end of our of Christian religion, but it's also the end of science itself, because science is dependent upon the idea that there exists an objective truth about the world that science is able to find out. Once science destroys the metaphysics that enables the idea of truth, then there's just perspectives, no objective matter of fact. Then only is religion over, science is over too. And by the way, so is philosophy. Doesn't that suck? And you see how radical this really is. He says, you nitwits, you're all crowing about how God is dead and there's no big deal, we're beyond religion, we all get scientific. You idiots, you don't know what you've done. You have no idea the gravity of, of, of killing God. And you're all slapping yourselves on the back, congratulating yourselves on this. Um, no one... It, no one misses God more than Nietzsche. The rest of these clowns don't have the wit to realize what they've done to that culture. 